This week on the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. We were sort of waiting to see, okay, if, let's play this out. If this thing is 1918, a 1918 level, highly infectious, highly lethal agent, we expect to therefore see certain indicators happen in a, within a certain time frame. And we didn't. In those early days, we that thing should have spread like a gasoline fire no matter what the Chinese did, okay? And what's interesting is at that time, we had a lot of public health people criticizing us and saying, no, 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 you're, you're wrong, you're wrong, this is 1918, you know, you need to be careful with what you say, you don't want to tone it down. Because I think in the public health community at that point, they were already dealing with anti-vaccination sentiment, and their push was to drive to the end point to scare the living hell out of people into compliance. And I, and I think that's unfortunate. That was a major vulnerability that we saw coming since swine flu. Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I'll be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment? And what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Today, we're joined by Dr. James Wilson, who is the CEO and founder of M2 Medical Intelligence. Uh, Dr. Wilson is a board-certified practicing pediatrician who specializes in operational health and security intelligence with a focus on the anticipation, detection, and warning of infectious disease crises. He has led the creation of several systems used for the anticipation and detection of infectious disease crises and disasters. And Dr. Wilson was the first operations chief of the Department of Homeland Security's National Biosurveillance Integration Center and led the private intelligence teams that provided the tracking of H5N1 avian influenza as it spread from Asia to Europe and Africa, as well as detection of vaccine drifted H3N2 influenza in 2007 and 2014. And amongst many things, Uh, Dr. Wilson is a strong advocate for effective and accountable global health security intelligence and the need for credible and balanced threat assessments. Jim, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks again, Kyle. It's a pleasure to chat. So that was an abbreviated version of your your bio. I know that you've done a lot of different things with the different sort of uh, influenzas and viruses going around. But today I wanted to sort of talk to you about the risk communications and the warning systems that are out there. And we're all sort of living through what I hope ideally the post COVID environment as we, you know, as we eventually get there. And I would just sort of love to sort of hear what you've been doing since this really seems to be your field and where you, you know, are really invested a lot of your time in your profession in at the moment. Yeah, sort of the, uh, thanks, Kyle. So I'm a pediatrician, right? And so it's kind of interesting. My clinical training is more oriented towards preventive medicine, right? So I'm always in the clinic advocating for vaccination and advocating for a healthy lifestyle, you know, with kids to try to help folks, you know, get on the right track to a long, productive, healthy life, right? And that translates really nicely into public health. So you see a lot of our public health colleagues who are MD or DO trained um, are pediatricians. Um, And that makes sense, you know, intuitively. But I got weirdly pulled into the world of biodefense in 
during my medical school, believe it or not, and got recruited by the government to start looking at issues around Ebola. Because at that time, this is in the 90s, Ebola was causing some mischief after um, quite, a, quite a long time of, of um, epidemiological silence. So we weren't getting any signals out of Africa for a while there. Uh, it had appeared in the mid-1970s, uh, caused a couple of highly lethal, very scary outbreaks. It, in turn, those, the, the, those signals actually spawned a cycle of Hollywoodization, where we had a lot of movies and books written. And, and it was during a time when Michael Crichton had already written the uh, Andromeda Strain. So we already had kind of like this, this cultural thread of, you know, science fiction. And, and I, I'm a huge fan of sci-fi, right? Massive fan. Right? I love it, right? And, and I grew up with it. And if you remember too, Kyle, you might be old enough to remember that you know in the late 1970s, early 80s, there were all these disaster movies too. So you also had not just outbreaks, epidemics, but you also had movies about airplanes crashing and earthquakes and volcanoes and you know. And so you know, it's kind of like America was a little obsessed with the disaster world, you know, and and I guess emergency management back then. So things come around in cycles, right? And so here we are again dealing with you know, the Hollywood aspect of that. And, I, and I, I've been conflicted over my career where for, you know, a quarter of a century now, I've been sort of dabbling, if you will, in this world of biodefense. And then um, you've got the routine pediatric sort of clinical experience. And then occasionally I get pulled off and diverted to assist with these crises, Right. Or we ourselves have detected signals where we're leading in. So we, we sort of so the way that I operate is I'm like a phoenix. <laughs> I jokingly say we live and die with every crisis, and, or a cicada, if you will, where we we hibernate between crises. Because for us, these health security crises, they come and go every five years or so, and the moment that we engage, we are attempting to provide objective warning intelligence. And when I use the word intelligence, I'm not talking, you know, James Bond here, although I've been referred to as a medical James Bond. That that, you know, <laughs> it's not that hot and sexy, okay? It it really is just looking at data and saying, okay, we have a nexus of a hazard and a vulnerability that's opened up and we need to talk about it, right? Uh, I typically am not concerned about questions of attribution on the front end of these things because when, and that's a whole separate conversation, but when those questions arise, it takes so much time to unpack and investigate. And it's a forensic process typically. And for us, when we detect a live fire, you know, situation here, we need to move. And we need to respond. And we cannot wait for those investigations. We cannot wait for politics. We cannot wait for bureaucratic hesitancy. We need to move. So it, it's very reminiscent to hurricane warning and response where you've got a risk or a hazard. It's coming in, right? You have a vulnerability to that hazard. We are aware of these vulnerabilities. Some aspect of the vulnerability we may not be aware of until we encounter the hazard, right? But we got to start talking now and we can't get hung up with people's hesitancy. Um, that is, of course, balanced, just like with hurricane warning with, hey, we don't want to overcall this. We don't want to create an unnecessary panic where somebody wants to come over and turn off the warning, 
because they're angry, right? Because they feel like you've called, you know, you've cried wolf. And so there's this delicate balance that we face that is, to me, almost identical to what any natural disaster uh, warning system faces, you know, and that is how do you communicate warning in a way that protects your operation, your your credibility, your integrity, as well as prompt, um, well-considered response. And I think in today's world, I mentioned the Hollywoodization of biodefense, you know, from the 60s and the 70s, you know, coming forward now into the present, is we do have a tremendous cottage industry of hype and sensationalism around this risk space. And when I say sensationalism, what I'm really referring to is our is the tendency of that social media amplified conversation uh, always goes to apocalypse, right? So I don't care if you're talking Ebola or Zika or even HIV. I mean, these are scary crises in the beginning. Don't get me wrong. I mean, HIV, a lot of folks don't remember what that was like when it first, you know, came onto the scene. That was a terrifying, you know, situation, right? And, And there's nothing that breeds sensationalism like uncertainty, right? And we know that as warning intelligence specialists, we know that. And I, and I kind of, I'm remiss in, in, men, in going back and in, in sort of reviewing, when I use the word intelligence, I'm not talking security stuff here per, per se. It's more, this is actionable information, right? This is information that could divert a president from his daily duties, okay? So this is important stuff, and it does relate to national security, but not in the way that we classically consider that, right? So classic intelligence is, okay, we have information that Russia is about to invade the Ukraine. Okay, well, okay, that's that, yeah, that's your classic intel. But problem is the world is a lot more complex than that. And the concept of national security defies clear, clean definition. And that's why you've seen even the definition of national security evolve over the decades, right? So I got pulled in to all of this uh, muckery, if you will, uh, under the Clinton administration, believe it or not, Clinton too. And during that time, that administration had the foresight to look at the intelligence community actually as a partner to emergency management, actually. So you've been really busy lately in terms of with the COVID response. And yeah. and so I, a couple of questions there, I guess. What have you been involved in with the COVID response? And then the second question being, how has this been different than what you've experienced in the past? Okay, so I'm going to flip those questions around. Okay. Um, because I think sure. the historical context will help set us up for COVID is, uh, yeah, we were involved in a lot of front-end warning intelligence engagements uh, in the past, right? So with vaccine-drifted uh, seasonal influenza, which is not a big deal. It's a very, it's not even quite a crisis. It's just we're anticipating a bad year of flu kind of thing, right? We also were involved with H5N1 avian influenza when it spread all over Asia and into uh, Africa and into Europe, right? And I think at the time, you know, we experienced a lot of the communication patterns that we see now with COVID. So we had a lot of preemptive experience where we were sort of expecting to see things play out a certain way in terms of risk communication. With H5N1 in particular, we had a cacophony of folks from the genomic sequencing community say, well, okay, the virus is mutating. 
It's like, well, okay, it's an RNA virus. <laughs> you know, we kind of expect that, right? Um, but ex please explain to us so that we can put this in our warning communications what that means, right? And they're like, no, 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 this, this, this virus is mutated. It's about to, quote unquote, go hot, meaning it's going to go into a, a mode of sustained human-human transmission. We are now at the front end of a pandemic and a global catastrophe. Because H5N1, if you recall back then, that was a virus that, that killed at a kind of a high rate, right? And so we were worried about, okay, is this is a if this is a highly lethal agent, this is going to be a catastrophe, right? And it was scary. Um, we knew though that biologically, a lot of these viruses do tend to adapt over time to the to the host, right? So it's not to their evolutionary advantage to kill everything, you know, that it comes into contact with, right? So we had this interesting you know, live operational juxtapositioning of two different theories <laughs> that were that were being communicated. One was, oh my God, we're all going to die because this thing is, quote unquote, going hot because it's mutating versus, okay, we're kind of waiting to see if this thing starts to cool down and, and maybe adapt. And that that to me was the far scarier prospect because then it was more difficult to detect the signals because Humanity has a bias to report death over morbidity. So the more that the virus sort of adapts and causes milder disease over time, the harder it is for us to see, you know, what's going on with the infrastructures that are involved with response, right? And for us, the infrastructures were always the hospitals, right? So we now take it for granted that we're, that we're hearing about hospital admissions of COVID, but for decades, we've been monitoring the planet for hospital admissions for unusual disease. I mean, this is these were one of the critical indicator sets that we've been using. So fast forward to swine flu in 2009, we did see indications of unusual disease in Mexico. We communicated that up to the, to the government. At the time, we were not on contract with the government. And so I think that played somewhat of a role in the failure in, in warning communication. Um, we did notice hesitancy at, at CDC. I mean, I, I had personal friends and colleagues at CDC who were trying to say, hey, hey, guys, what are you paying attention to today? Whatever it is, you need to pay attention to this right here in LaGloria. <laughs> you know, like we, we've got a situation here in, in LaGloria and Oaxaca State that, that, you know, this doesn't this doesn't look right. Right. They are trying to do a SARS rule out. You know, their, their ICUs have patients that they cannot diagnose, and it's a respiratory disease. And respiratory viruses make us the most nervous, you know, historically, because of exactly what has now played out with COVID, right? Because these things tend to, tend to go. You can't get containment very easily, right? But back then, we noticed that there was a lot of hesitancy to warn the public that they were waiting for for verification, ground truth. Meanwhile, President Obama was physically in Mexico City and we weren't paying attention to that thread. We weren't involved in that piece of it. So maybe that played a role in hesitating to inform, you know, because if the president stands in, stands in Mexico City, we don't want to send up this huge international, you know, flare saying Mexico has got a situation with, with a health security risk, right? So I understand there are other things to consider when, when trying to provide warning. The problem is, is by the time you know public health got around to issuing the warning, the virus is already in New York City, had already killed people, right? And so it's kind of like, well, what level of tolerance and warning delay do we have? 
you know, as a society. And I think that the problem with a lot of these stories that we tell is we don't have commissions that review the warning process after each of these events. I don't care if it's HIV, Zika, Ebola, you know, Marburg, whatever, right? I don't care if it's a lab accident, naturally caused. We don't sit down and review the warning process. What went right? What went wrong? How did that connect to response? What response actions were done? Typically, what we see is people just will completely ignore the warning signal unless it comes from CDC. So if CDC is hesitating, because, you know, rightfully so, they can't breach public trust, right? They need to have ground truth and verification, so so on and so forth. The problem is these viruses, they don't care about our bureaucratic process. We are so heavily connected by air traffic. Basically, the way we operate now is by the time we detect something, I don't care where it is on the planet, there's a chance that that, that entity could already be inside the nation already transmitting and that that to some extent was true with COVID, right? So the pain and suffering that we felt through swine flu is that we felt like that was a warning failure. The detection was a success. The initial communication of the warning was a success, but overall it was a failure because it didn't, it was not communicated effectively and early enough to our healthcare infrastructures I did get on the phone at, at a point in the process, it was about two weeks there, we were trying to get a warning to punch through. And I finally took the initiative just to get on the phone and call the state epidemiologist of Texas and um, Arizona and California and just, just say, hey guys, if you haven't heard the word, there's something going on in Mexico and it might already be in your state, right? And as we know, in hindsight, that indeed was the case. But I couldn't get any state epidemiologist to pick up the phone and answer my call. And so, mm. you know, you know, that our company that at that time provided that warning, that was Veritech, that was a $10 million venture backed company. We had 50 full-time analysts who were highly specialized in this discipline. The company folded. We couldn't get the feds to do a contract. They they, you know, and then later people criticized WHO for calling swine flu a pandemic, saying it wasn't so bad after all. I mean, so it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. And yeah. so that was, a, that was a bitter lesson, right? Fast forward now to COVID, different team, different company, same analytic discipline. This time we said, you know what? We learned our lesson. We're going to make sure that we have trusted relationships established before this stuff happens. And I was very fortunate to you know, develop a good professional relationship and friendship with uh, an emergency manager who's in charge of our hospital infrastructure in the state of Nevada, uh, Chris Lake. And Dr. Lake has a whole bunch of experience with, um, you know, uh, in the paramedic community and, and firefighting community. I mean, a lot of, lot of different experiences in his background. And so when all this stuff started going down in Wuhan in late December 2019, um, there was a couple days there where where we did our duty, and what we were doing was we were benchmarking that we we recognized the signal in Wuhan, and that we had prioritized that signal among thousands of other reports of outbreaks and disease activity throughout the world. That that is the one report that that we're going to talk about today, and we punched out a a public message to WHO. 
we punched out a public declaration on LinkedIn, including notation that we, you know, that San Francisco was connected by direct nonstop air traffic to the tune of thousands of passengers a month with Wuhan. And this was on January 1st. So we're talking New Year's, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) So you want to also keep in mind that even public health, you know, they take time off. This is the holiday, right? And, and of course, all these things happen on the holiday, right? It seems. Friday night at 5 p.m., you know, that classic dynamic, right? So what we're doing, when we communicate on social media, there are a lot of things going on. I mean, when we hit the send button or the post button on LinkedIn, there's specific purpose in that. And the purpose in, in noting that on LinkedIn was to tell the right people we are engaged, we are tracking, we are not hyping, we are not panicking, but we are aware. And we consider this a priority signal until proven otherwise. And we'll begin to escalate our communications accordingly, depending on what we perceive to be the magnitude of the hazard. So it's exactly like hurricane warning. You start with a tropical depression and you work your way through the categorizations in your communications process. And, and, the, and the hazard can escalate or de-escalate depending on what's going on with the hazard, right? And so in the case of Wuhan, we began that initial process. We did not encounter a lot of sensationalism or hype or, or people trying to blow things out of proportion in those early days. And that was a golden hour, a golden period, right? Because we weren't harassed, right? For lack of a better word. And we were able to start that dialogue. So, so it was really January 5th that I got on the phone and called this emergency manager who's in charge of our hospitals because there's a time delay with this stuff. There is. And if, it, if I lived in San Francisco, it'd be an entirely different. I mean, I probably would have put the call the day that we detected it, right? Mm. Or within 24 hours because San Francisco is connected. Uh, Nevada, on the other hand, we're a couple steps removed in the network. I mean, it's still possible. All it takes is one passenger. We know that to fly in there. But we knew that there was a little bit of time delay and there's a cascade of, of uh, indicators spread that we're looking for geographically, right? So we have a situation in Wuhan, but then, you know, and, and they have uncertainty in their reporting. We might be concerned about whether or not the Chinese are hiding things. Yeah, you know what? That goes with the territory. have been monitoring China for decades, you know. But we were sort of waiting to see, okay, if, let's play this out. If this thing is 1918, right, a 1918 level, highly infectious, highly lethal agent, we expect to therefore see certain indicators happen in a, within a certain time frame. And we didn't. In those early days, we, that thing should have spread like a gasoline fire no matter what the Chinese did. Okay? Mm. And what's interesting is at that time, we had a lot of public health people criticizing us and saying, no, 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 you're, you're wrong, you're wrong. This is 1918. You know, you need to be careful with what you say. You don't want to tone it down. Because I think in the public health community at that point, they were already dealing with anti-vaccination sentiment and their push was to drive to the end point to scare the living hell out of people into compliance. And I, and I think that's unfortunate. That's a, that's sort of a, that was a major vulnerability that we saw coming since swine flu. We had watched the spread of anti-vaccination sentiment in social media among physicians, even 
right? So I was, I was embedded in closed position networks. Like, you know, I can't name names, but there are a couple of well-known companies like they're like LinkedIn, but they serve physicians, right? And I was watching seasoned old school physicians, some of whom were in charge of residency programs, training physicians, spreading gross misinformation about vaccines. And that was a very concerning pattern. We tried to share that strategic intel with with uh, CDC. They blew us off, right? In my opinion, they just, they totally ignored us. And so I was like, well, all right, this is going to come back to bite us eventually. And I would say it did with COVID for sure. You know, all the, all the shenanigans around flu vaccination came back to bite us, you know, in spades. Mm. Uh, so really what I'm hinting at is that conversation on January 5th with our emergency manager, we did not care what the president was doing. We did not care what DOD was doing. I, I mean, look, it's, this is a civil matter. We're connected by direct nonstop air traffic. Um, you know, our country is right. And therefore, you know, after lessons learned, it's like these, these hazards, they don't care about our societal or bureaucratic processes. We need to mm. find other ways of ensuring resilience, right? And we'll, fit, we'll figure out the details later, unfortunately, right? Because you got to move. And so at, on that January 5th phone call, we reviewed the strategic intelligence. We're like, hey, you know, like, remember, we, we've talked about these other issues before, you know, just heads, hit, you know. <laughs> let the games begin, you know, as my colleague had said. And I remember that conversation and, and he was right, you know, is that a lot of politics started coming in as the days went by and the weeks went by. Um, in January and February, let's come back to what we didn't see. So we didn't see gasoline sort of the gasoline fire transmission that we were expecting. So we were expecting mm-hmm. to see basically light up. We were expecting to see um, multiple of these megalopolitan foci of high population density population centers, right? We were expecting them to become, bam, abruptly overwhelmed with this virus, where everyone across China and across Asia were saying, oh my God, what just hit us? You know, and within six weeks, see this intense pulse of grossly overwhelming patient demand, ICU demand, death, right? We didn't see that. So we were expecting Hong Kong and Singapore to say those things. So fine, China, maybe they were effective with censorship. Maybe we couldn't see what they were, what was going on in China as well as we wanted to. Well, okay, there's always Hong Kong and Singapore, right? Because history had shown that eventually gets to Hong Kong, Singapore, and then you get a clearer signal. So once it hit there, what we noticed in January is that those two locations actually handled the first wave pretty well. They did not get, I mean, did they see a surge of hospitalizations? Yes. Did they see a few ICU admissions? Yes. Did they see one or two fatalities? Yes. Nothing like what they are seeing currently. Now, that's a really, really important point. And it, actually, I consider it validation of our initial assessments because currently they are now experiencing serious strain. They had it together for that first wave, but this, this subsequent wave is really causing trouble. Why? Because the virus has now mutated and adapted, and now it's infecting so many people that, yes, on an individual basis, the risk might be lower for death for you as the individual. 
but so many people get infected that eventually the, the numbers catch up to you, you know, and then, then you get that, that flood, that, that surge. The ringer in all of this, though, was so, so during this period of, of basically we're talking like January and into February, we started to see a substantial increase in sensationalism and just random, you know, Harvard trained epidemiologist gets on Twitter and says, you know, the reproduction numbers five, we're all going to die. So we started to see, and that's a true story. We started to see the same communication patterns that we saw during H5N1, where people were looking at sequences and they were looking at mathematical modeling and, and they were running the models to infinity and coming back and saying, you know, here's your fear appeal without any context. This is complete. We're going to be completely toast. Right now, I've got gray hair. And so, you know, I, maybe I'm old enough to sort of be, to sort of look back in history and say, well, was that the kind of leadership that Winston Churchill exhibited during World War II? A time of extreme fear, fully validated fear, right? Do you want someone leading you into battle who is shrill and driving you to apocalypse? right? Is that helpful for response? We know we have to mount up and go. What we don't need is fear, 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 fear. What we need is, okay, let's talk about what we don't know, but let's talk about what we do know. And let's talk about the points of reassurance that if we come together, we can manage this. It's going to be bad, but we'll get through this together. And I think that that was the lesson of Churchill's risk communication strategy, right? Is the only thing to fear is fear itself, right? They, these kinds of, of, you know, phrases that, that we heard back then, you know, some may say, oh, well, you're blowing off the crisis. No, that's not what we're doing. What we're trying to do is, is not overgun the anxiety because we're still counting on people to show up for work. We're still counting on a nurse who might be a single mom showing up in the ICU wearing N95 gear that where we're not quite sure what's going on with the critical medical supply chain, much of which is rooted in China, by the way. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff going on back then where we were trying to encourage people to exhibit some degree of restraint, pull it with the talk about lab accidents, right? We don't need talk of bioweapons and lab accidents during this period inappropriate, right? And not wise, given that, you know, you have these other elements that are not being well discussed going on behind the scenes that are critical points of uncertainty that we need to be careful, right? And what I saw was just this explosion of just, we had no bounds. And I do think that it's rooted in that cultural trend that dated back decades of the Hollywoodization of the discipline, right? The uh, sensationalism in the cottage industry and biodefense, all things go to apocalypse, right? There's no, there's no chance of, you know, come on guys, you know, like Zika, they, they referred to Zika as a pandemic. I disagreed with that terminology because pandemic is a thoroughly squishy term, right? It's not like hurricane warning where you actually have criteria to declare it a category one, two, three, four storm. You have this wide open term that can be interpreted a million different ways, it seems, depending on who you talk to. 
I remember getting on another podcast and saying, well, to me, uh, you know, again, I'm just going old school here. Pandemic means no human can escape contact with this agent. This thing Mm -hmm. is going to spread pole to pole, right? And yet now in today's world, a pandemic means a regional epidemic. You know, did Zika spread all over the planet pole to pole where no human could escape contact? No, it did not. And we had one biodefense commentator get on to CNN and, and try to compare it to HIV because it's an RNA virus that could be transmitted through sexual contact. Well, so can Ebola, right? Again, it's these, it's the extension of the what if into the thinner edges of probability, but also into the thinner edges of we can't really define the probability. What is the use in doing that if you don't have a concrete, you know, here's what you do about it on the back end of that that's clearly communicated, right? And so, again, I, I do feel like, and I'm conflicted, I would not have had a career if I weren't inspired by the Hollywoodization, if I wasn't inspired by the books that were written by some of these commentators in the biodefense community and journalists in the biodefense community who inspired me to do what I do now. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? But again, so February, uh, we get into February 2020. We were guiding, it's kind of like, uh, I, I sort of jokingly also refer to myself as a midwife. I'm helping somebody deliver a crisis. <laughs> and I want you to put a toe in the hot tub. We don't want you to cannonball into the hot tub, right? Like, let's ease into this. We have time to ease into this, but let's talk about how this thing is evolving, right? And and so it's, again, it's similar to hurricane warning because you do have a gr- graded level of response that relates to graded level of threat, right? Or, or risk, if you will. And I know I'm mixing my terms here. You know, some folks get bent out of shape if I use the word threat, but, you know, risk, okay? But in February, late February, we did note with a high degree of, concern what was going on in northern Italy. So before northern Italy, we noticed that the virus had had penetrated the ICU network in the Netherlands. And we went on a brief high alert because we were expecting to see SARS. We were expecting to see healthcare workers infected, the ICUs to get abruptly overwhelmed, and then the Netherlands to go sideways with social and economic disruption. Okay. And when that didn't happen, we sort of we, we sort of reassured. Okay. Then we saw Bavaria, right? Bavaria had a little outbreak. And it was on the ground for a while in Germany before they really realized what was going on. The report back from the Germans is these people were hospitalized mainly for observation, but generally speaking, they were pretty healthy. That was reassuring, right? So we were look, we were watching for these critical indicators, but we weren't seeing them. And then northern Italy, it's like, holy cow, what the heck just happened there? Like, bam, it did look like 1918 all of a sudden. Hmm. So you had confusion, right? Um, and I do think it's worthwhile to come back later, years from now, when all the emotions have died down and really we need a Mr. Spock to come in the room, (laughs) no emotion, and really look at the data and look at kind of how this thing unfolded because there are lots of lessons here for the future generations to learn from this 
process because, you know, we don't want to assume things. We don't want to blow things off, but we don't want to overcall things either. We need a balance. And getting that balance is, and I hope the listeners are hearing this, is bloody hard. Really, really hard to do. And maintain credibility, right? Maintain trust because you already are dealing with, going into this, a public that's anti-science, anti-vaccination. Dangerous, right? Yeah, I think that there's one of the things that we sort of picked up on the last couple of years, for sure, in the last couple of years, and, and more so, let's say, in the last six months or so, is sort of the issue behind... You know, you have a crisis coming up. In this particular case, it was a pandemic. You could use any other sort of, you know, try predicting earthquakes or something, right? Um, sure. So you, you have this sort of, you know, prediction coming up. You you have to balance the, you know, like you said, your the trust, public trust, credibility of the organization, and then giving advice to people, you know, and in terms of communicating that risk and, and sort of threats and the hazards and everything else that go along with that. And I think one of the fundamental problems was this wasn't an acute issue. This was more like a, a being, you know, we're going into the second year now. This has been a chronic issue. It's coming in waves. And, and along that process, one of the things that we tend to discount is that we're learning every day, yeah. which is changing the information. And, and everybody, when the, the first messages were coming out, we're just absolutely certain, you know, this is, is absolutely 100%. This is what's happening. And, and nobody seemed to be able to really sort of grasp the idea like this is something that's evolving all the time. And so in terms of messaging, what I think one of the things that sort of undermined public confidence, if I guess I was making, if I'm going to make my point here, is one of the things that's undermining public trust and public confidence in the messaging and the risk communications is the fact that you know, it's a, it's a, it's a moving goalpost, right? Yeah, and, and you're, it, there's always an expectation that you know what you're doing and you're saying the right thing, you know? So it's like, this is your job. You have to yeah. be able to understand this so that you can tell public what to do. And then at the same time, it's like, well, on Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock, yes, this is the answer, you know, but yeah. on Friday it could be something else. Uh, and yeah. so there was sort of zero tolerance for being a human trying to predict things and you know and 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 the messages just keep changing and so once you learn once you evolve then you change then people go oh see (laughs) you know they didn't they didn't know what they're talking about in the first place and and that's what i sort of see the longer we go on in this the the more that the situation changes and then we have this sort of dynamic between, you know, the evolution of advice, the evolution of expertise and the changing messages. And then the public sort of saying, well, see, I told you so because in January, 2020, you said it was this. Yeah. And, and I, I still have people come back and say, well, you were dead wrong, you know? And, and I was like, if you were listening to what I was saying, and if you had communicated with me at the time, I, I, tried to keep saying to you, as of today, this is what our assessment is. But that may change in the future, right? And, and that latter, that epilogue, if you will, of, of point made <laughs> was consistently ignored. I mean, just people didn't listen to it. I would say in February, though, by February, we started to see the rise of politics, right? The, the Democrats and the Republicans fighting. Mm-hmm. 
that to me was utterly counterproductive. And I, and to this day, I'm, I'm angry about that. I think that was poor leadership on everyone's part. And, you know, and I, and we're not a political organization. I'm not, I refuse to be political about this. We had lives to save. We had a country to protect. Put all that stuff to the side. I don't care what other social issues we have, put it to the side. We need to focus on this. And part of the reason for that, for my belief of needing to take that mentality was grounded in 1918. I firmly, and I've investigated bioweapon attacks. I mean, I, one of the common thing, themes that we have seen that, that enables a community to navigate through crises like this is they were already united with common purpose. And in 1918, our country was united in common purpose to prosecute World War I. All right. And I think that was a major point of strength that helped them be prepared for 1918 in an era where they didn't have, you know, sophisticated hospital infrastructure. They had no antibiotics really to use or antivirals, I should say. Um, they did not have access to a vaccine. They had to just simply take the hit. Right. And somehow manage their way through that. And I think that's a side of the 1918 story that you'll find that the academics often don't really like to focus on is let's talk about what actually. Like if we were to give kudos to the people of 1918 at that time, what would we say? Well, they rebounded like that. Their economy rebounded. Yeah. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, that we can explain academically. But I, I think the public health folks are very reluctant, I find, to look at the other side of the equation, which is our species inherently is incredibly resilient. So we did a lot of studies looking at endpoints in health security crises. What, what is the true apocalyptic endpoint? Do we have any historical examples of what the utter worst case scenario looks like? And what you'll find is that Despite uh, us wanting to have attention and priority and funding for the work that we do, it's kind of, you're kind of hard pressed to find a pandemic or find a, a health security crisis that ended with the extinction of a human community. It is really rare to find that. You know, so mm. we are incredibly resilient as a species. Simply ask the planet Earth. <laughs> we have unbridled growth, right? We always have, right? And yes, we've been. We have been forced to hesitate with our population growth from time to time because of epidemics. Yes, we know that. But not all epidemics, again, go to apocalypse. And I, and I do think, I agree with you, is that the messaging, I think some of that comes from public health perceiving that they can't, they can't be wrong. They're not allowed to be wrong, right, ever, right? And you can understand why, because they're advocating for pharmaceuticals, Right. And, and that's not a clean thing either. Right. Like it's not zero or one. You know, the vaccine, you know, works to prevent horrible outcomes, but it's not an absolute ironclad guarantee. You can still have a patient die who's fully vaccinated. Right. Because they have other things going on. Right. So the messaging and I think the way that we teach our kids, I mean, this extends through our education system. I mean, there's no black and white in biology. Right. These are. It's, it's a shifting of gray and a, and a mitigation of probability, right? And, and that's the way, you know, I've always looked at this stuff. And I think that the ease 
the relative ease, I should say, with which I was able to sort of come into the warning intelligence world as a physician is because we are we have got a Bayesian network sitting in our heads every day we see patients. You come in and see me, you got a fever. Well, I know right off the bat that does not mean Ebola. <laughs> okay, you've got a fever. Odds are you're going to do just fine. It's, you know, it's, it's an illness. You're going to do just fine. But I'm going to tell you what to look for, right, to prompt you to go to the emergency room if things don't really, you know, on the off chance that things don't go well. And it's the exact same sort of process is one indicator does not equal pandemic. It's, it's a pattern of indicators that evolves over time before you start to say, ah, geez, you know, is our luck about to run out? So going back to Northern mm-hmm. Italy, when we saw that, I remember having a phone call again with my buddy and we were having daily phone calls, right? Up to that point. But I, but I said, hey, listen, you know me, I'm not going to hype things. I, I don't believe in panic. But if you're hesitating to do anything in preparedness, now is the time to stop hesitating. <laughs> because mm. either A, we were dead wrong with our assessments, or B, something has changed with this virus. It has mutated. It's done. It's adapted. Because I am really concerned with what I'm seeing. So what we saw in Italy was they capped out. They, they completely blew their capacity. It was pretty impressive to see. And I, I, to this day, I feel so um, blessed that the Italians shared their data, but also uh, sad for them. That was a horrific thing to see happen. Um, at the same time, New York City was seeing an incursion that was pretty impressive as well, reminiscent of what Northern Italy was seeing in terms of just the abrupt overwhelming of the hospitals and the overwhelming of the ICUs and then the, the bodies piling up faster than we can get them into the grave kind of thing, right? And I remember um, there was an emergency manager in New York, you know, we were trying to, again, we are still trying to tone down the hype a little bit because this is getting scary, but we still, we don't want to overdo it, you know? We got to take a Winston Churchill approach here because this could get ugly and we, we need all hands on deck. We don't want people staying at home and being afraid and not showing up to take care of these patients, right? And I remember a New York City guy coming back and saying, you know, this is an example of crap intelligence, you know, that this was this was a bad warning. And I peeled off to the side and said, hey, listen, uh, I want to understand why you're saying that. What, what's what's your perspective? And, and he felt like that they just didn't get adequate warning from New York City's perspective. But NYC was not our client. We didn't we weren't we had no trusted relationships with anybody in New NYC. No one's paying us to do anything for New York. We, and so that was, if I were to go back and say that point of regret, that's an example where, regretfully, we weren't able to have that dialogue with New York in the weeks leading up to that, um, because I think he would have felt differently had we had that trusted dialogue. And I do think, insert from his perspective, I agree with him, the warning intelligence for him in New York City was crap. Um, now, it wasn't until August, months later, that we saw the genomic sequencing um, reporting from the academic community. It was a national lab. And that, that's, that was when they first highlighted that that spike protein was stabilizing and enabling the virus to transmit much more efficiently, which explained what happened in, I think, Italy. But it also explained why we didn't see that same pattern in, um, in Singapore and Hong Kong, 
So <laughs> forensics, right? Right. So, <laughs> so you get that information after the fact and, and it's like, well, okay, that's academically interesting, but that didn't help us at the time. And so my comment for the future generations is be prepared to pivot on a dime. Like, so when we, um, develop the hospital surveillance system that our state now has used for all five of our waves. Um, we were leveraging the warning intelligence that we originally acquired from Wuhan to you. We used the, the requirements like you need to collect this data element, this data element, this data element, because this is what's going to happen. That anticipatory intelligence was what led to the creation of our system, which predated the federal system by a month. By the time we stood it up, though, because we, we didn't have funding to do it, and by the time we got funding, courtesy of Italy's experience, we suddenly got a, got a pop of funding to be able to stand this thing up and pay the contractors to do it. By the time we got this thing up and running, we noticed that we were already in the first wave. <laughs> mm. So talk about reactive surveillance, right? We were already in it. And actually, as it turns out, the first wave wasn't so bad. But the way that this stuff works risk communication-wise is the most dangerous period of response when it comes to health security crises is the contact, first contact with the first wave. That is the most dangerous period because of lack of familiarity. Once we get through a wave or two, now your infrastructure, your responders have dealt with it. They've gone through multiple rounds of this. They know what to expect. And yes, there may be variations from wave to wave, but now we kind of understand what we're dealing with, right? And so, again, uncertainty, you know, you got to navigate that initial period effectively. And, and again, I, these, these nuances, I think, were just completely lost in the noise and, mm -hmm. um, that's unfortunate. And, you know, fast forward to current, I totally agree with you. People are fatigued. They're done. We've gone through this now in our location. We've gone through this five times now. We know what we're doing. We don't need hype. We are sick of hype. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, come on, guys, you know, tone it down. You know, the sub, the conversation around the subvariant Omicron, mm. yes, noted, you know, genetic change. But tell me, so what? Right? And the so what for mm -hmm. us is if you've got a country where this subvariant is in dominance and they're experiencing overwhelming ICU admissions because of it, that's so what? Right? And that has my full attention. If you're dealing with a country that just has a surge of hospitalizations, but no surge in high ICU admissions and no surge in ventilator use, that's kind of a so what. But that's also an artifact of testing everybody upon admission, too, with a highly transmissible virus, right? Uh, right. If you, you know what I mean? So, I mean, there's, there's, there's the social media and news media generated warning signal, which is like no boundaries, wide open, goes to apocalypse always. And then there's ground truth, right? And so for us, we are so fortunate and blessed to have going back to basic emergency management principles, that trusted relationship that bridges the ground truth, the warning intelligence, you know, all of it with seasoned emergency response that knows not to just react to media reports, but we're in a constant cycle of trust, but verify. I think mm -hmm. the narrowness of the current wave of Omicron, you know, that shot up and then resolved pretty quickly 
that's an indication of how transmissible this agent is, but also a signal of reassurance. With broader penetrance in the society, you know, you have also natural immunity, which is another interesting ringer in all this risk communication stuff. We noticed that uh, the more we highlighted Sweden, for example, who controversially just let it rip in the first wave, we've noticed that their waves of ICU emissions have steadily declined with each wave. And I do think that part that's partly because they just they have allowed natural immunity to buffer the effect, as controversial as that is. Now that notice that's in direct conflict with public health response, which is pushing vaccination which to be crystal clear, we advocate for as well. I mean, get vaccinated. Don't play games with this. You know, save our hospital infrastructure, get vaccinated. But you'll notice that we don't like talking about what's going on with natural immunity because we can't really measure it accurately. And so lots of conflicting stuff and we don't want to interfere with public health, right? So we're we're kind of caught in the middle here Mm -hmm. uh, at this point in the pandemic. So when we're talking about all this stuff, and then thanks for sharing all that information, you know, I'm sort of struck by the the aspect of, you know, what does the future hold in terms of the next crisis? And so having lived through all these different, you know, experiences with Ebola and everything else, uh, and, and through Corona now, what would you recommend to people in the future? to clarify their messaging and to be able to break through these sort of obstacles that you've experienced? Well, I think the first step is we need a COVID commission. Mm. And I know it's impossible to have a COVID commission without some element of politicalization. We, you know, we're not, sure. <laughs> we're not naive. Um, but I do think you need to have that. And it's, it's concerning that we still don't have that. Um, and maybe politically, we're not going to be ready to have that for another 10 years. I, I get it. But we need to have that. We need to have a structured process of reviewing and warning intelligence successes and failures with each of these crises. We need to capture lessons learned. We need to have corporate memory as a nation, as an international community around these events. Uh, We do not have that. You know, in talking with our allies, they don't have cells of people that do this work. You know, it's disturbing. You know, we do have elements of biosurveillance in our in our government system, but it's notable that we do not have a persistent, sustained corporate entity. And I don't care if it's government, private, nonprofit, doesn't matter. A National Weather Service-like entity that does warning. Now, that's very different than forecasting. Forecasting is reliant on a given baseline of data that is well-structured, well-maintained surveillance for known disease, right? And so CDC's new forecasting center, that's that's an interesting and helpful step, potentially. But if you don't have the warning piece that goes with it, it's going to be limited, right? And and it, it indeed has been limited. You know, the future is a dangerous environment, in my opinion, because we still have, we have an increase in the lack of structure to how we communicate warning. And it's thanks to social media, it's thanks to mass media, and it's thanks to the cacophony of individuals who now have a soapbox to stand on without any inhibition whatsoever say anything. And I would say that they could criticize me and say the same thing about me. Okay, so fair Mm -hmm. enough. 
But let's just admit to all of ourselves, <laughs> there's no structure here. And without structure, you know, there is a risk that we're going to screw up warning for the future. What we need, so that's one side of it on the communication side. But now you've got a public that has now lived through this. And their livelihoods have been affected. Mm-hmm. Right. So for those families that didn't lose a loved one or a close family friend, their perception is this has all been hype. So I would argue that we have even bigger issues with public distrust. So that's dangerous. For those folks who actually lost a loved one, you know, I would say, well, a lot of the concern was validated for them because they saw direct personal impact. Right. And that's what makes these types of crises very tricky is the minority are affected, but the majority are affected indirectly through economic stuff, right, and the disruptions to their lives. So it's very, uh, it's tricky. And so who do you trust in the future? I don't, you know, we don't have a Winston Churchill anymore. Mm-hmm. We need, we need, we need a, an organization we can trust, and I, I don't know how we achieve that, honestly. Yeah, and I think a lot of it in terms of social acceptance, in terms of, um, you know, accepting the reality that, how can I say this in a, in a, in a polite way, um, you know, government is fallible, right? Uh, well, yeah. You know, people are trying to do their best, and we shouldn't always just assume that there's, you know, the 100% correct answer every single time, right? Absolutely. And so that's where... You know, we have to sort of accept like there's people that are in those positions that is, you know, are responsible for these things to make an assessment, to take the data, to provide these warnings. But it, it may be fallible at the end of the day. That doesn't mean necessarily run out and do your own science and try and figure it out yourself. But you have to sort of rely on people who are in those positions. And then to be able to have a certain amount of trust, you have to extend that trust. And then at the same time, that trust has to be sort of reciprocated by you know, government agencies or officials being able to say, look, we're, we're reading this as we have it today. And, you know, like you did. And, and for, you know, this is what we understand today, but this could change. And when it changes, we'll tell you. And and we have to be, you know, sort of adult about that conversation. But I think certainly the last couple of years has changed the entire relationship then between authority and then people who are listening and, and the whole warning system and, and everything else that we're, we're using. And like you said, if there's what has social media done to undermine our public warning and communication systems, you know, and, and is it, is it more or less effective than what it used to be? It's a very interesting question. It is. And it's not really a clear answer. I mean, I, I think it's, I think your gut feeling is, Oh, well, it screwed everything up. Well, but on the other hand, it empowered me to um, very publicly give indication that we were rolling up on a situation and a lot of people saw that. Thousands of people saw that. The right people saw that, right? And so I think that it also empowered us to be maybe a little more resilient, even though maybe our national leadership was not prepared to engage. And Mm. so that is a... (laughs) That's another elephant lesson in the room here that's sort of sitting there very quietly is what I'm describing to everyone in your audience here is we did not wait and we moved completely independent of the of the established authoritative system to promote resilience because we had to. 
Uh, we did mm-hmm. not. It's it's kind of like that old Navy mantra of lead, follower, get out of the way. Well, mm-hmm. we led. And we did not yes. hesitate to do it because we had had the prior experience and training to do so. And people can pick at various aspects of what we did, but looking back on it, we did the best we could with what we had and we don't regret it. And, you know, we'll, we'll, I, I dare say that most of my team members will go to their graves thinking that, well, we did the right thing, you know, the politics aside. Right. And I, I do think that's a major lesson as well is that we need to, we need to learn to drop whatever extraneous external stuff and learn some national focus, <laughs> national priority. Right. But that's a lesson yeah. for innovation, right? Cause I, I guess I was a little reassured to see, I mean, it's still dismaying to see, but our colleagues in Australia had a real rough time with this. So we weren't the only ones. Okay. In Canada mm-hmm. right now, having a rough time with this. We're not the only ones. So I think that too, let's, let's be a little forgiving that we're not the only nation that truly struggled with the right way to handle this politically. Sure. But yeah, you know, well, hopefully we learn from this entire experience. That's the, uh, that's the idea there. So <laughs> Jim, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the show today and sort of sharing your experience and your insights, especially in terms of, you know, the, the, the medical intelligence piece and, and warning and communications. I think that's extremely important moving forward in the future and we're still living through it today. So yeah, thanks so much. And, and if somebody wants to get in touch with you or find out more about your company, where can they find you? We're at m2medintel.com. You know, they can certainly reach me by my uh, email address, which you have, and I'm on LinkedIn. So just look me up on LinkedIn and I gave you the, uh, the email or sorry, the uh, web address for that. Um, and, uh, you know, just watch out for our posts. I think once the dust settles a bit more, maybe in the next, we're going to wait a little bit, maybe another year or two, look out Mm -hmm. for trainings from, from us. We have trained people how to do what we do, um, because we do have a belief at this point that it's better to teach people how to fish than to fish for them. And, and I, I really, after years of doing this, that we're at that point now. We all need to, as a global community, need to be on the same page as to what these critical indicators are that we're using to cue us to these events. They also need to understand what the indicator cascade pattern actually looks like. You know, and so very similar to, again, hurricane warning, like this is what you watch out for. This is what a tropical mm-hmm. depression looks like. This is what a cat one storm looks like. This is what cat two, three, four, right? Or the tornado, tornado Fujita scale. I think we're, we need to get to that point. I think right now it might be premature because I think everybody's sick and tired of talking about COVID. But I think for the future, we need to get to that. All right, great. So we'll add all that into the show notes so everybody can take a look. But Jim, once again, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Always a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Capacity Building International and the International Emergency Management Society. You can join teams today at tiems.info. That's tiems.info. And also sign up for the International Emergency Management Newsletter by CBI at capacitybuildingint.com. Is there a topic you would like to hear about? Or are you a functional expert and want to be featured on our show? If so, reach out to us at info at capacitybuildingint.com and let us know. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.